from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz Group headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, the ins and outs of cutting food waste, how farmers are sowing the benefits of carbon farming, and why corporate chief sustainability officers are in a pickle. Where there's a dill, there's a way. This week on 350. It's March 11th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here at Green Biz headquarters with senior editor Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How's it going? It's been an interesting week. How's, how's your week going? Good, good. I have to admit, I'm pretty excited this weekend. I'm taking off for New York and to finally go see Hamilton, see what all the hype is about. Yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. I'm jealous of that. I wanted to do that. I looked at the prices because I'll be in New York in April and it uh, just wasn't something I wanted to shell out for, but I really want to see it. Yeah, we'll see how. I'll let you know if it's worth it. But I heard you were actually plotting ahead for some stuff we've got coming up much later on this year. Is that plotting with a D or plotting with a T? And we'll see, depending okay. on the context. Probably a little bit of both. Well, one of the things we're exciting, excited about is something that's going to be happening in San Francisco at the end of May, beginning of June, called the Clean Energy Ministries 7, or SEM 7, CEM 7 is the new COP21. <laughs> uh, and in fact, this is a little bit of a, a follow-on to the Paris Peace Conference. Uh, this is an event that's been put on for, I guess this is the seventh year by the U.S. Department of Energy, and they bring together uh, energy ministers from around the world uh, and bring them together, and this has taken place in in various cities and I think outside the U.S. as well. This one's going to be right here in San Francisco, right across the bay from us. And uh, we're just been we've been talking to the organizers, uh, the Advanced Energy Economy, that great organization and a partner of ours, the Bay Area Council uh, at Business Group and the uh, California Governor's Office, Jerry Brown's team, which are the three principal players about uh, kind of doing what you and I, Lauren, did in Paris. Uh, we'll see. You know, we we were there. We were on stage. We were doing interviews. We live streamed some of it. I don't know how much of that will do for this, but it's an exciting time, and it's a it's a great group of people from around the world coming to talk about something near and dear to us. And so uh, we're gonna see how we fit in. Yeah, it was the draw in the Bay Area, sort of proximity to Silicon Valley. Like, is there going to be a tech piece to this one? Or? Indeed, yeah. In fact, the first day, I think it's uh, might be the thirty first of May or some some sometime before the the two big events, I believe, are June first and second. There's going to be a bunch of uh, what we used to call field trips uh, to you know Tesla and. Tesla, <laughs> Tesla, <laughs> you know, I don't know whether there's whatever else is cool. There's lots of cool stuff in the Valley, lots of R&D labs, lots of great companies. Um, uh, one aforementioned company being the sort of iconic one that everyone likes to go see. And they've got the world's coolest automated factory. So, yeah, they'll be the, the, the proximity to Silicon Valley is definitely a draw. Well, we'll stay tuned for details on that. But let's jump into what happened this week. Well, speaking of clean energy technologies, there's a big announcement this week from Whole Foods Market, which uh, signed a deal with uh, NRG and Solar City to put solar on top of a hundred of its stores. I mean, this just seems to be 
boom times for solar, right, Lauren? Yeah, obviously this is building on top of other commercial buyers. Like you hear also of a lot of other retailers with big real estate footprints like Target, Kohl's, Walmart, Costco, Ikea. Uh, Senior writer Barbara Grady actually took a look at this issue for us. And I was kind of surprised to see, yes, this does fit in um, with a boom we've seen in commercial solar installations. 2015 was a banner year for that. But really before that starts sort of starting from a low baseline um in 2014 commercial sales had actually fallen from the year before so it's an interesting space yeah i mean this goes to sort of the adoption curve of a lot of technologies and part of it is that these you know things are slower to grow initially they sort of this gradually uh uh sloping upward line with occasional twists and turns and all of a sudden it just heads north it just flicks up and, and there's the, you know, the, the hockey stick thing. And that's what we're seeing. Uh, we saw that last year with solar. Uh, it just really uh, exploded in a lot of ways and, it, and it's going to continue. And one of the things that, that always fascinates me about this is that we think that, okay, this is a pretty mature technology now. It's gotten to scale. It's affordable. Uh, it's, it's on a par with grid, you know, fossil fuel energy. But if you look at the patent filings at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, um, Solar technologies, is of all the clean technologies, is one of the highest number of patents filed every year, which is, says to me that there's a lot more that's going to be happening here with, with solar in terms of innovation, price performance, the way to integrate it into buildings, lots of other things. So I, this is very exciting. Yeah, and I would encourage anybody who's interested in this topic to take a look at Barbara's story. We'll we'll link to it, but it's full of good data on the solar industry. My favorite is a chart on the top 25 companies by solar capacity. Walmart is way out in front with about 142 megawatts, followed by Prolongus. Yeah, look at number two. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you look at the top 10, it's Walmart, Target, Apple, Costco, Kohl's. Some of the companies, you, you know, Hearts Mountain, Johnson & Johnson, but Prologis. What is Hearts Mountain? Uh, they're a uh, pet food. Uh, company, yeah. Okay. Obviously, you never had a parakeet. And you... <laughs> I have not. <laughs> uh, Prologis or Prologis, I don't even know how to say yeah. it. But it's, it. We'll have to look into that, why they are a number two way ahead of Target. Um, but that's sort of the, you know, companies find that it works and they go for it. Mm-hmm. But from Whole Foods to a very different sort of food story, we had another one this week that was a follow-on to a big report that laid out 27 ways to cut food waste while also saving billions of dollars. Um, this was another story that Barbara did for us, actually, and she was looking at sort of or the, the report by a group called Refed, which is a corporate consortium looking at ways to cut food waste. Um, they found sort of there's... Uh, things that require high investment, like setting up better composting infrastructure. But there are also other things that can be done, uh, like preventing food waste at the source, um, which have a potential to say uh, an annual business profit potential of about $2 billion. So I think it's sort of figuring out the math on how much do you have to invest up front in some of these solutions and what is the payoff? What's interesting is, and I think you you said the the key word there, consortium, that the, our ability to, to really track some of these and attack some of these problems, and we mentioned food waste, by the way, in our 2015 State of Green Business Report is one of the trends to be watching over the last year or the next year or two, so right about now, and we're you know always gratified when we see those actually come to, pardon the expression, fruition. <laughs> uh, but um, this is really, it, it, what's happening is it, it, across a number of sustainability issues are these 
partnerships and consortia uh, where you bring together just a diversity of players from industry, academia, government, uh, NGO world. And, and that's this group, Refed. Is, it's got a, a bunch of really interesting players. Uh, you can go to the About page and see who's, who's part of that, from obvious players like Waste Management and, and Walmart to you know, the Biogas Council and EPA and NRDC and a number of foundations, the city of Phoenix. And so just you know, it's, it's Sodexo, which is, of course, very much in the food, institutional food business. So uh, I think that's how we're beginning to realize that we can take on these big problems and, and take on these big, hairy, audacious goals. Mm-hmm. And one reason I was really interested in this particular report is that I think people often see it as kind of like a boring or wonkier part of tackling these big issues. You need to get the data and you need to read pages and pages. But um, they laid out a pretty concrete roadmap. The goal here is to cut food waste by 20% within a decade. That would pencil out to about 13 million tons of food waste being prevented. Um, And they really measured it out by what the financial payoff would be for each of these 27 solutions, what the reduction in carbon emissions could be as part of that, how much water you would save. So really sort of a detailed and visual look at these issues that could get pretty nitty gritty. Yeah. And the other story I think I want to talk about uh, this week is this... uh, story uh, by uh, Gib Hebstrom. Uh, Gib is an old friend of mine, a cons- longtime consultant in sustainability. I met him back in the 20th century when he was a part of uh, Arthur D. Little group out of Boston, just uh, really one of the first, I think, main corporate environmental consultant groups. He wrote a piece called Why Chief Sustainability Officers Are in a Pickle. And it, it's it's a little bit of uh, navel-gazing about the profession, but I think it's something that needs to happen. And he, he looks at the fact that on one, it's sort of best of times, worst of times kind of thing. On the one hand, climate change has been seen now as the number one global risk, and, and that's bringing attention to the companies and their corporate climate carbon footprint and all that, you know, that had to reduce that. Uh, And partly because of that, and for other reasons, uh, CEOs are now getting sustainability. They read it uh, as one of their top challenges in in some of the surveys, and uh, and their C-suite in general is starting to figure out how to to integrate this stuff and address it effectively, not just as a do-good kind of thing. And, And a number of companies are talking about value creation, um, you know, how this stuff really creates value. On the flip side, though, he also points out that there's sort of still this lack of face time directly between chief sustainability officers and CEOs, which can lead to things like a misalignment of resources, where you maybe don't have the budget or the manpower to make big dents in your sustainability priorities. Um, And then there's also this thing that we talk about a lot in our reporting and the annual State of Green Business Report, which is this penchant for incrementalism or goals that you know can be easily achieved so the company doesn't end up looking bad. Yeah, you know, this uh, always one of the the advices, get a few quick wins and uh, that will build on your success. But the problem is if you're thinking small, just in order to get those wins, you're not going to make the kind of progress. And, you know, the the real challenge here, and as you know, we have this membership group at GreenBiz called the GreenBiz Executive Network, run by our colleague John Davies. And it's about 80 companies, uh, their sustainability execs that we bring together uh, several times a year face to face so they can learn from one another. And I just have to say, Lauren, that these I, I these are my heroes because, and this is one of the things that Gib writes about in the piece, is the fact that 
they they do miracles on on meager budgets. I mean, they you know they use bubble gum and packing tape and stuff to just pull things together. They have huge audacious missions but no resources yeah, so even though it's a billion dollar company a billion dollar global footprint tens of thousands of employees and so how they operate out of influence and persuasion and bridge building and communications as opposed to command and control i think is really interesting but you run into your limits and that's what this piece is about mm-hmm. gib did have a few tips for those listening that are dealing with this issue day to day um he says definitely know your numbers and not the numbers you already know that are sort of wonky sustainability metrics um but sort of delve into customer feedback data uh data on employee recruiting things that will resonate with people in other departments and to that end look to sort of build bridges with the c-suite or um hr r&d all the places where sustainability sort of could touch an organization. Gosh, I I wonder which numbers I should note that I don't. So one of the trends that we had in our 2016 State of Green Business report is about regenerative agriculture. And this really gets to the fact that in order to feed the world as we go from 7 billion to 9 or even 10 billion, uh, the UN uh, estimates that we're going to have to increase our food supply by 60% by the middle of the century, and that 100% of that will have to be regenerative, which means farming that, that actually cleans the water and replenishes the soil and ideally fixes carbon, in other words, bringing carbon out of the atmosphere, drawing it down into uh, the the soil. And so part of that is something we wrote about uh, called carbon farming, which is, uh, you know, not growing carbon the way you'd, you know, farm corn or wheat, but actually using uh, carbon sequestration as a part of that, um, uh, the part of of growing whatever you're growing. And, And it's a really, really interesting area. Mm-hmm. And there are also fossil fuel companies and businesses and other industries that are looking at ways to think about carbon in a different way, sort of see how you can make it part of new products or things that are making money for the company. Um, but Peter Bick, the documentary filmmaker, was on stage at Green Biz 16 in Arizona talking about some of this specific to the beef industry and a group he's been calling the Soil Carbon Cowboys. Yeah, Peter's an old friend of mine. He used he did a movie a number of years ago called Carbon Nation. It happens to be the only feature film in which I have a little appearance. Oh. So my entire IMDb uh, uh, page is filled with just that one appearance. Uh, that's Sorry, I, dig- <laughs> I digress. Uh, well, Pete, what Peter is doing is been working on a project uh, looking at how what does it take to remove a million metric tons of carbon from the atmosphere using carbon farming. And he's got a team down at Arizona State University where he's also a professor uh, working on how to do this. And he got up at Green Biz 16 a couple weeks ago in Scottsdale to give a presentation about carbon farming and all of its potential to have ag be one of the great saviors of climate change. In the film, we were looking for solutions to climate change. Clean energy, energy efficiency were the things that everyone was pushing us towards. But what we learned is that the soil is really 
the place to get the carbon out of the atmosphere. We have too much up there. We're not slowing down. How do we get that out of there? And in the soils, the biggest bang for the buck that we found was a thing that we're calling adaptive multi-paddock grazing. So adaptive multi-paddock grazing is, is, is emulating the way that herds of bison moved across the Great Plains. The Great Plains, before a lot of us showed up, had the best, amazing, most amazing soils ever created on Earth, 10 feet deep, 20 feet deep, amazing amounts of carbon, 10% carbon, 12% carbon. We've lost over half of our carbon on soils pretty much around the planet. And so we want to talk about getting carbon up there back down here. And so what's happened with AMP grazing is, is the, the, the ranchers will get their cows and, and steers into a smaller paddock than the area they own, and they'll move them around, sometimes for two hours, sometimes for a day, rather than just letting them roam free. And that's the big difference. And a lot of people think that when you have to set up a fence, bring it down, electronic string fence, that it's a lot more work. But there's a fellow in our film that we made called Soil Carbon Cowboys who has a different opinion about that. I'm going out to set up a temporary fence to make a small paddock of one acre or less. I can put one up and down a quarter of a mile in 18 minutes. I'll put anywhere from, oh, 800 to 1,000 head on an acre or half an acre. I've got more spare time on my hands and I know what to do with. I do a lot of thinking of how to do all these things easier. If I was to start this when I was your age, you know what would have happened? I would have had 15 kids by now because I spend so much time in the house. We found one paper conven uh, comparing conventional grazing, which is where you just let the animals roam freely in a big giant space for a long period of time, with amp grazing, the herd migration mimicry. And what this paper says is that the amp grazing sequestered three tons of carbon more per hectare per year for the 10-year study. Three tons of carbon. And so there's three and a half billion tons of carbon on Earth. If you, if you were able to do that on one third of that, which is huge, but if you were able to do that on a third of the available grazing land, not tearing down a tree, not getting anything other than what is naturally grazing land, you would be able to sequester half of all human emissions. These are big numbers, big ifs, but there it is. There's the number in front of us, and that's what's uh, getting, getting me out of bed every day. really kind of sounds like a no-brainer. Why aren't we doing more of this already? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that we're still trying to understand the science that if you put X on your field uh, and it, it will produce Y, uh, emissions uh, uh, reductions or carbon sequestration. But the other is that techniques like carbon farming have trade-offs. For example, they're more labor-intensive than industrial strength monocropping. Uh, they're upfront costs, uh, maybe planting hedgerows that keep the wind from drying out the soil, which allows you to retain more moisture and have the soil do its its work. Um, but, you know, we're just learning how to do this. And, you know, farmers... Uh, have their ways, and anything that's different is change can be hard. And so, you know, Peter is doing a great job of doing the metrics that we need, so that we can really we can really understand this. When we really understand it, it'll allow us to create policy that will incent farmers and make them really, you know, make the business case and want to change. 
now is the point in the podcast when we take a minute to talk about what is going on at Green Biz. Joining me now is Shauna Rappaport, who is our esteemed Director of Engagement. How's it going, Shauna? Hi, Lauren. Doing great. Thanks. Cool. So you have, you wear many different hats. You focus a lot of your time on our Verge event series, which is sort of looking at the combination of tech and sustainability and what happens when those converge. But you also do some cool stuff, um, like at our recent Green Biz 16 event, you've been hearing a lot about in Arizona, um, lining up some sort of cool performances there. Can you talk a little bit about what we mean when we slip these special performances into the lineup? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, for me, the inspiration around bringing these more, you know, inspirational acts into our events is, it's sort of there's two two components to this. One is a very it's the inspirational piece, but there's also a very practical piece too. You know, we spend these days sometimes three four days straight, you know, in our suits and largely in our minds, processing very cognitively so much information and. It's easy to forget that we're also humans and we process um, we process information in different ways and in different parts of ourselves too. And so for me, the, 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 the value of this is really about kind of getting out of our heads and into our hearts and really remembering why we're here um, and, and having that presented in a different way. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of stuff do you look for? A lot of this seems like sort of a fusion of arts and sustainability. Like we've had Cello Joe, who's a really interesting musician who was beatboxing boxing cellist. And then in Arizona, there was slam poetry. Sort of what do you look for? I look for acts that bridge both the content relevance. So, you know, there are there are lots of incredible musicians and artists and poets, but always the lens through which I'm looking is, you know, are there people who are either motivated by and share the same values as as we in our audience around sustainability and planetary stewardship, or people like Cello Joe, for example, who have, you know, traveled cross country on bike and have incredible personal stories that have kind of taken a different approach at living the mission um, in a different way. And, you know, he was a great example too, Verge at its core is about the intersection where tech meets sustainability. And so here he was creating this extraordinary music with a cello, but using technology um, to do it. Yeah, Cello Joe, by the way, did make a cameo on an earlier episode of the podcast. You can always check that out, greenbiz.com slash 350 for all of our episodes. Um, But Shauna, what are you looking at sort of moving forward? We've got a couple big events coming up later this year, Verge Hawaii and then Verge 2017 and Silicon Valley or 2016, my bad. I'm always on the lookout for, um, you know, I think you kind of hit it across. There's there's the performance pieces. so music, um, we've had some really incredible poets on our stages. I think uh, what I'm really excited about is branching a little bit more outside of those two realms and looking at, at bringing more individuals onto our stage, coming from an even broader spectrum of diverse backgrounds and, and, and kind of bringing some of the themes that we're exploring in a very tangible way to life. And I think, you know, the one last piece that I would add is that there's, there's actually incredible research and data that shows the impacts on creativity and imagination and even problem solving when we get out of operating in a very cognitive and intellectual space and instead drop in a little bit more into experience. Um, and for me, that's really what, what these are all about. 
Yeah, it definitely reminds me of some of the work we're seeing from people like Future Cities Lab and a lot of people working in sort of the built environment and making spaces more engaging for people. Um, so definitely a cool space to watch. And we, we could talk all day about this, but I do want to go. We have a really cool clip from some of the slam poets that were in Arizona with us at GreenBiz 16. Yesterday, the day before that, before that, last week, a month ago, yesteryear. You are in this place. You've always been in this place. You're saving grace, saving days after days after days, standing at intersections of inspiration, intersections of change, attuned to details, tempos, tones, composing life as it should be, discovering dialogues that go beyond doom, rewriting what doesn't make sense. And yes, you must do a lot of rewriting. But dropping the baton, not an option. Today, Today every, every day, day, your heartstrings, a symphony of sustainability, winds of change, even amid cacophony. You are, you are caterpillars. caterpillars. Designed for locomotion. First movement. This is for all the same sh different days, for all the Mondays that last through Fridays, all the coffee high morning jitters trying to shake the feeling that a bed just might be a better option than a paycheck, for all the bedtime stories and caterpillars that never knew they would soar one day, for all of the memories that exist only in dreams because our dreams exist only in a past life, for every college picture passion that died when the tassels flew, for all the pigs that have to fly to find a little bit of hope in today. Today, let's, let's grab, grab our glass, glass, understanding that it will only be half empty if we stop pouring. Let's pour a little bit more today. Let's daydream in the middle of it. Get distracted in the midst of it all. Let it rain until it pours. Pours over the edge, over the top. Let's go bottoms, bottoms up. up, knowing the glass is now only empty because it was proof that we had it in us to take it all in. That every time we turn it on its head, our head turns upward towards the heavens with it. And with stars now in our eyes, we can see that this day is happening for the first time in history. Its pages are filled with the tales of the victor and today we are its author. The page is only half empty because there is plenty of story left to tell. Second movement. Every morning when I get up, I go to my bathroom, look at this amazing man in the mirror and tell him I am ready. I am able. Say it with me. Say I am ready. I am ready. Say, I am able. I am able. Each day is your day to make change if you say so. Every day, remind yourself that you are an agent, no, an instrument for change. So play your tune. All right. Well, very cool. I'm curious, Shauna, from your perspective, Hawaii, which we have coming up in late June, seems like it would be an interesting place to look at sort of the local culture and how that meshes with all these big global sustainability issues. Are you already sort of prospecting there? We are indeed, yes. In fact, Hawaii is rich with uh, traditional culture, and so we're looking at a number of different, including a number of different facets, including something they called an ol they call an oli, um, O L I, which is not to be confused with oil. Um, yes. And and um, it's sort of a formal welcoming, and and we're looking at a number of other per uh, performance and song related pieces as well to include in the event, and and. 
you know, that really does get to the heart too of what I think a lot of the creative arts is about, which is really about celebrating culture. It's so easy to focus on the technologies and the policies and the models and financing mechanisms, and those are all really important. And, um, you know, who we are as humans and the culture that uh, we're rooted in and also that we're creating um, is certainly an important piece of this too. Well, inspiring note to leave it on. Thank you very much, Shauna Rappaport. My pleasure. All right, so who doesn't love somewhat arbitrary holidays? This week it was International Women's Day, which is as good of an excuse as any to talk about a theme that has been coming up over and over again in our reporting of late, and that is the role of women's rights and women's empowerment, especially on the economic empowerment side, in sustainability. So joining me now is senior writer Barbara Grady. How's it going, Barbara? Hi, Lauren. Yeah. Um, So we were both writing on this topic this week. Um, I think my piece was a little broader. It was looking at the headline was, what does gender have to do with sustainability? And we were talking before we went on the air a few minutes ago that sort of, I think, part of the problem for why companies maybe aren't engaging as much in some of these gender diversity issues is just because it's so broad. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like companies have to choose where they're going to focus to empower women whether it's through education, through better positions, through um, working with women that are in the supply chain. And that's what I wrote about. Kellogg has decided to really help women that are farmers in its supply chain. It's interesting you bring up the supply chain piece because one of the things that came up in my reporting was that there seems to be these very distinct buckets of working abroad in women's empowerment at sort of like whether or not women are part of the formal economy. Uh, So maybe like, like you're saying that you're a smallholder farmer or like it's working to keep girls in school for longer um, versus like these white collar things we see a lot more in the U S and in Europe, which are aimed much more at recruiting women and sort of moving them up the executive food chain. Yeah, very different topics. <laughs> right, right. Gender and is the only thing in common there. Exactly. And uh, one of the things that uh, was also timely in all of this was that BSR, short for Business for Social Responsibility, um, this week launched a new collaborative called Investing in Women. There are 13 companies that were a part of that, including Intel, Estee Lauder, Kate Spade, PepsiCo, Ikea, so kind of all over the map. Um, And we don't have a number for how much they are investing in women, but it sort of gets to this question about, like, why bother with uh, investing in gender, something that seems kind of maybe abstract and hard to get at. So I asked Aditi Mohapatra, who oversees all of BSR's women's empowerment portfolio, sort of what is the business case here and why should companies be interested? We are seeing a, a tremendous increase in um, in business interest in this topic. You know, um, ICRW uh, did, a re- did a study that, that looked at just investments over the course of 2014 to 2015 and found that over $300 million of corporate investments in philanthropic and, and in other forms were going towards the topic of women's economic empowerment. Now, I think it's an area where companies are have identified that they have a key opportunity 
opportunity to influence the status of women. Um, and they've really understood as well that doing so brings benefits to them as a business. I think as companies uh, look to grow in different markets and different regions, um, one of the most in- important consumer bases that they're looking towards are women. And when they dig a little deeper, they realize that there's a lot there that stands in the way of women really realizing economic empowerment. I mean, I think we're seeing kind of companies invest in mainly kind of two broad areas, really kind of around skills development. So a lot around kind of education, a lot around training, getting women the kinds of uh, technical training, vocational training, uh, financial literacy training, things like that, that will really help them be able to more fully contribute to society. And then you're seeing a lot around um, opportunity development, so creating access to markets, you know, sourcing from women-owned businesses, um, creating opportunity in the sense of opportunities to advance within companies. So really kind of when they are part of a formal economy. I think you're seeing most of the action take place in the consumer product sector. I think, you know, for many of them, they are very reliant on women as their consumer base. So there's a clear business case. You're also starting to see a lot more action in the technology sector. The technology sector as a their number one area of focus is talent management. And when they think about their workforce of the future, women are a big component of that. Yet when they, again, dig deeper, they realize that women traditionally have not been part of kind of this science, technology, engineering, math kind of pipeline. And so they're investing in a lot of programs to get more women interested in the technology field. Our message to companies is that you first need to look at, well, what are your impacts on women? And you need to look across kind of your full value chain. So you should look from your kind of supply chain to your business operations to how you're engaging with what your consumer base looks And really, where are the different kind of entry points that you have to impact the status of women? So a lot of companies who are in the consumer product sector, for example, will look at their supply chain and realize that 70 to 80 percent of the people who are manufacturing their clothing or their products are actually women. And so actually, the types of programs that they have to manage those suppliers should have a gender lens associated with them. I also want to get a little more specific, though. Barbara, you mentioned Kellogg. So what sort of program are they looking at in regard to to women? So Kellogg started a big initiative with their farmers in the supply chain. They say overall they're helping like 500,000 farmers in some way or other by sourcing ingredients from them. But about 65,000 are what are called smallholder farmers, meaning, you know, tilling an, an acre or two, a hectare or two and largely subsistence farmers in some cases that have a little bit extra to bring to market or, you know, kind of a combination. So what Kellogg is doing is trying to empower the women of this group because they tend to be the ones that are actually doing the farm labor but very rarely realize any income from it. Yeah, that's one thing that's interesting. Like, you might not necessarily know that women are a lot of the farming base in some of these countries. And that I know also uh, with electronics manufacturing in Southeast Asia, garment factories, uh, they also tend to be these very heavily women-dominated roles, um, which sort of, like, you you might not think of it as a gender issue, but I think that's what some of these groups and companies are trying to get at. Diane Holder said, the uh, chief of sustainability officer there at Kellogg, said women tend the fields and then men, like, manage the books. Mm -hmm. And yet a lot of these women are the ones that are bringing 
of trying to support the community too and obviously kind of watching out for their children. So they felt like if they were able to empower the women so that they could somehow earn an income on their own, that that might be farther spread farther through the community. Mm -hmm. And part of this is also obviously the globalization of supply chains. And I know Aaron Kramer from BSR um, said at the Green Bus 16 event we had a couple weeks ago that women really have in some ways been like the big beneficiary of globalization, even though some industries still do do pay dismally low wages, which is a huge issue. Um, But there's jobs there where there maybe weren't before in part of the formal economy with supply chains mm-hmm. um so it's interesting to hear like what was kellogg's sort of business well, case for doing yeah, this yeah one of the they're trying also to bring so-called climate smart agriculture down through the supply chain so they're working with this ngo called technoserve who's training women in india and south africa on these so-called climate smart agriculture techniques so that they can produce more they can they're land brings more yield and they don't wear out the land by kind of simple things often by um, rotating crops say um, watering at the right time etc bringing them information about weather I mean we take that for granted but if you're in a third world country where you know electricity is hard to come by you can't really check your internet for tomorrow's weather or next month so they have systems for getting people access to information through simpler means. So it's not necessarily super high tech, but the goal is to provide information that wasn't there and sort of help people yeah. do their jobs. A lot of it better. is agriculture training. And some of it is business training, mm-hmm. like so that women can take control of the farms and manage the income and so on, mm-hmm. revenue. So I spoke with a woman named... Samantha Krauss, who has overseen the work on the ground in India and in South Africa. So their work in India, very interestingly, is to try to give all the farmers some clout by helping them develop these franchisees, these cooperatives, farmer-producer companies, they're called, that can allow the farmers to get access to not only seeds, but also maybe financing and high-quality fertilizer that will help them produce more. And then also on the marketing end, having more quantity together to bring to the market. And then in Africa, it's very different. The farmers they're working with in South Africa are currently just subsistence farmers growing for their own families. And their work would help them produce higher yields enough to make it easier to feed their families, but also consider bringing some crop to market and therefore earning an income. So it's kind of interesting stuff. And you actually talked to some of the players involved in this, correct? Yeah, I spoke with Samantha Krauss, who is the Senior Manager of Strategic Initiatives at TechnoServe, meaning she works with companies and others that might be interested in getting involved with the farmers and helping their lives. And here's what she said about the collaboration with Kellogg. So Kellogg, through its sustainability commitments, has made a commitment of supporting 500,000 farmers with uh, Climate Smart Ag training and and general farmer training. Within that goal includes, uh, Kellogg has included a goal to reach 15,000 smallholder farmers. 
So what we're doing for Kellogg on the ground is we are supporting training for, or we're providing training for uh, farmers, maize and wheat farmers in India, as well as maize farmers in South Africa. We are training smallholder farmers in India and South Africa on improved agronomic practices um, so that they can increase their production volumes and ultimately increase their income and resiliency to climate change. A significant portion of the farmers that we're training are women, and this is critical because women are often uh, often do a significant portion of the work on these smallholder farms, and providing them with access to training enables them not only to to have to be empowered to implement improved production methods, but also to have uh, greater control over uh, the income that's derived from farm production. So, for example, we'll be incorporating in South Africa uh, reduced tillage, crop rotation, as well as improved drought-resistant seeds. And this will help farmers to be more resilient to the, the effects of climate change, including drought, as well as to reduce the greenhouse emissions. What we find is that when women are empowered, particularly when they're economically empowered, more of the income that comes to the household is invested in, in the household and particularly in children, things like children's nutrition, children's education. So investing in women is, is really very powerfully investing in the next generation. Interesting stuff. We'll have to wait and see if more companies jump on board here. Well, Barbara Grady, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Lauren. See you next time. What's happening next week to tell us that is managing editor Elsa Wenzel. Hi. Uh, Next week, Joel has a new piece called Why Microsoft Gave Sustainability a Promotion. And Microsoft isn't the only company where sustainability seems to be entering the C-suite and getting more validation more and more. So that sounds like good news for you, dear listener. We hope. Cross your fingers. Um, David Crane, former Energy, Energy CEO and... One of our newest editors at large also has a great headline coming up, which is that carbon is a terrible thing to waste. And Lauren, you'll be looking at some of the um, more fringy sustainability jargon. Um, Has anybody heard of purpose washing, for example? Um, So those are three great pieces to look forward to next week. And I'm also looking at your shirt, Lauren. It's so cute. It has Boston (laughs) Terriers all over it. I'm so jealous. Yeah, it's like rainy and sad here. So I need something to keep myself happy. Um, But yeah, we've also got 
a webcast coming up that you guys should all tune into because it's free and it's going to be great. It's called Setting Our Sights on a Sustainable World, looking at a shift in corporate goal setting. So how to actually get things done on your sustainability agenda. That's coming up April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, You can get information about all of the stories and events we mentioned on the podcast by going to greenbiz.com slash 350. Okay, thanks, guys. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can find the links to organization stories and the events we mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to 350's producer, Saria Melkonian. And uh, you can subscribe to Green Biz 350 through a variety of channels if you like doing that. Uh, go to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other things. By the way, uh, Green Biz news of all types, including the podcast, can now be found on, Google, on uh, Apple News. It's a little app, the newsreader that Apple has put into its current uh, OS. And uh, look for us there. Of course, you can always find uh, everything we do uh, in Green, uh, Green Buzz, our daily newsletter. And we can find uh, this program published every Friday on greenbiz.com. Send us your feedback, your ideas, your comments to 350 at greenbiz.com. And for all of us at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day. 